And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. I am confident that the Democratic Party will reunite on the basis of democratic principles and that together we will march towards a democratic victory in 1980. I think the Democratic leadership understands that we need to bring those people into the party. We need to transform the party. We need to make the Democratic Party a democratic party with a small d. I think the future of the party is working class. And I think that what I represent and, and perhaps, you know, Senator Sanders, also Senator Warren, there's a lot of working class champions in the Democratic Party. And I do think that that's the future. Welcome to Talking Strategy, Making History. I'm Dick Flax, activist, retired professor of sociology, and a really old guy. And I'm Daraka Laramore Hall, a slightly less old guy and also an activist and political strategist. And on this season on Talking Strategy, Making History, we're going to be talking about one of the big questions for progressive strategy here in the United States in what we're calling a hitchhiker's guide to the Democratic Party. Hello, friends, and welcome to the final episode of season one of Talking Strategy, Making History. Uh, we promised at the start of this uh, journey into the weeds of the Democratic Party and progressive strategy around the Democratic Party that we'd help fill in some of the blanks in the, the underpants gnome problem facing progressives thinking about the party and thinking about American politics, that we somehow know that we should be doing something in the Democratic Party, and then blah, 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 it's something, 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 and then we get, you know, social democracy or uh, progressive happiness or whatever we're calling uh, luxury, fully automated gay space communism these days. And what we've tried to do is talk to folks out in the field, to scholars, to uh, activists, and to each other. Uh, between uh, Dick and I, and, and, and try to fill in those gaps um, about what's actually happening out there uh, on the ground, what's happened historically. And uh, in this episode, we want to try to condense all of that together and throw out some ideas about what the underpants gnomes could be getting up to to move the Democratic Party in a progressive direction. Is that right, Dick? That's right. And, uh, you know, I guess what we've been struggling with uh, and, and learning a lot. I mean, I have to say that I don't know about anyone who's listening or you, but as far as I'm concerned, I've learned an enormous amount about that very question of how do we get from here to the there? And, and the there, you know, I've been using the term, what's our vision of the Democratic Party? But the term I've been using is the People's Party is what we want to create. I don't know if that uh, I, I noticed you were adopting it too, so I thought it was possibly correct. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. That's a slogan I've used as a, a candidate inside the Democratic Party for offices, um, as a, a party activist and an and officer myself. I think it's I think it's a good one. Uh, I think it's a good goal. And and what I like about it is that uh, in saying that something's the People's Party, it it implies two things. It implies that the politics of the party would put regular folks first, working families first, um, the great masses of people and their interests before 
those of corporations or other elites, but also that kind of possessive of saying it's a people's party would imply that regular people would have power in it, power to direct it as an institution. Um, and I think, yeah, so I think it's a, that's as good a, a, as any I've heard that's right. or, or read about in the la- of the last century yeah. in trying to encapsulate what we'd like out of the Democratic Party. Yeah, and I like it better than left wing or, you know, using those kind of uh, uh, ideological labels. It's neither inspiring nor clarifying. Um, that's one thing I, I, I kind of been feeling all along. So uh, what are the paths that we have, I think, heard about and learned about as we've gone through this toward um, moving the party in that direction? of being a party for the people and a party of the people, a people's party. But one thing that surprised me as very important as a key to strategy is that the Democratic Party should really be an organization of substance in all 50 states. Mm-hmm. And that that was something that uh, Howard Dean was advocating years ago when he made that run for president, and yet the party leadership or bureaucracy basically rejected that um, as, a, as a central priority. Um, yet we've heard from people like uh, Jane Klebb in Nebraska uh, and others that we've talked to that this is a key, not just to strengthening the Democratic Party, but to actually moving it in the direction of uh, being a genuine party of the people. Because part of the idea of strengthening, I gathered, was that the party would then have the capacity in each state to connect with people at the grassroots. Mm-hmm. And the assumption that uh, I think she makes, and that uh, I certainly am willing to um, endorse, Howard Dean was recommending that the party organize in all 50 states. And I think my impression is uh, that the consultant types who dominated the party strategy at that time said, oh, there's no point in spending resources on these very strongly Republican red state kind of places. That's right. And um, what they were forgetting uh, is the fact that many of those states were historically had elected populist figures to Senate and other um, offices uh, there's a long history of that. And, and I'm thinking of people like, oh, Idaho, which is about as red a state as you can find, elected Frank Church to the Senate. He was a tribune of, of progressive values when he was in the Senate. Or Mike Mansfield of, of Montana. Um, I'm just randomly thinking of, of names like that. Um, and there, I think every single red state in the, nor- in the, in the West and Midwest uh, certainly has some of that that history. I think even now there are examples uh, of people in the Senate from some of those states who are continuing that tradition. I, I don't know about in the Senate. It's getting harder and harder to have that yeah. kind of political profile in the Senate um, or really anywhere, um, yeah. you know, it's because of how successful the right has been in organizing you know, top to bottom in rural, in states with a lot of rural population. And so you're right that the 
we're certainly never going to be able to push back on that if we're not actively engaging in those communities. Yeah, so that's that's Jane Klebb's kind of point, which is got to organize at the grassroots uh, in a in a progressive populist fashion. And uh, you know, sometimes you'll hear consultant types again or pundits say, "Oh, the, the party won't appeal to people in, in the red states because it's too too far to the left." And yet, I think her idea, when we talk to her and in things she's she's advocated, is the idea that populist program as well as a populist vocabulary is what will perhaps enable the party to connect with ordinary folks, working class folks in those and rural people uh, in those communities, in those states. Um, and the idea isn't you're going to convert Republican Trumpists, but that there's a working class population that historically many of them have voted Democrat or their ancestors have. And maybe that's one basis to appeal to them. But of course, it isn't just the past. It's the possibility of presenting uh, policy ideas and directions that actually will connect with what people need in those states. But you can't do that without direct organizing at the grassroots. That's right. Yeah. And, and I think that one thing that you highlighted that is kind of the important takeaway for me, the stakes here for party building for creating a party that's a people's party rather than just a kind of franchise company that if you get the party nomination, your consultants come in and you you get to operate under the the logo and the branding of the Democratic Party. That's that's the model of the Democratic Party over the last 30 years or so, especially at the national level, that it's not an organization with a grassroots uh, of activists that are committed to doing work in between elections. It's not uh, a place where policy and movement ideas are are generated. It's a, a, a an umbrella and a, and a brand um, that you get to capture um, if you organize well enough at the elite level and that will spend money strategically you know, in order to protect incumbents and pick up seats in legislatures at its best, but nothing else. And so to me, you know, the, as, as a first uh, set of principles to agree on for making the Democratic Party a people's party, it has to be that it's not just that whittled down husk of, a, of an organization that's just a, a stamp to put on an electoral operation every four years only where it's viable. And she, you know, informed us that the, the budgets that a party like her party yeah, in Nebraska right. gets so little resources from the national party uh, that she ha she didn't even get paid. If she's, full, she's a full-time party chair in Nebraska. So is there good news? Uh, as we did this podcast, there was a turnover of leadership in the, D in the Democratic National Committee, the new chair, is someone that she, on this podcast, advocated for, Jamie Harrison, and he seems to share very much the same perspective that people like her are, are advocating. Is that your understanding? Yeah, well, I think she shares part of it and, and is an ally in 
the, the sense of understanding that you've got to be putting resources out there counter cyclically, so to speak. You know, Harrison is someone who who watched with interest the situation in Georgia where, um, you know, consistent uh, engagement with voters paid off um, to, to make uh, new areas, new geographical areas competitive for the party that weren't before. And he's he's, you know, interested in doing the kind of uh, investments, I think, nationwide uh, to make that possible. At the same time, though, I mean, we, we just have to be f- frank about what we're, we're talking about. Those folks who believe in a 50 state strategy still tend to see party organizations as mainly a framework to move resources through, to move money through, to to hire people into for uh, campaign purposes, not as a political home. So if we were going to or, or a, a year-round organization with a, an agenda. And that's an important distinction because, you know, while Jane would talk about, um, you know, Nebraska and the, and the just absolutely, just incredibly, unbelievably small amounts of resources that they're dealing with there as a state party, um, you know, even in California, which is a, a, a nation unto itself, the over 30 million people and... Uh, you know, I think 11 or so million registered Democrats, uh, even in California, the party staff is skeletal, is very small. Um, only one of the officer positions, statewide elected officer positions, is paid. Um, it's still very, very volunteerist. Uh-huh. And, um, and, uh, and in terms of the resources that are spent by the Democratic Party, whether at the local level in a county or uh, in state elections is just a tiny percentage of the amount of money spent in politics. And that's a, that's the structural part of this that I, I think progressives have a stake in trying to change. M- more of politics should happen in organizations, in things that are participatory, and less of it funneled through elites directly to candidates. And that's about strengthening the party and expanding the role that the party actually plays in electoral politics. I think the left has stakes in doing that. Yeah, and and it's not just the elites channeling to candidates. It's this class of political consultants, uh, the technologists of campaigning, who uh, we didn't really explore that topic in detail in this uh, season, but uh, there's a way in which that class of people runs against the, the kind of vision that we're talking about uh, the party becoming or being. Absolutely. Well, the second thing that um, uh, I learned a lot about and uh, that we heard a lot about is the growth over the last few years of political engagement at the grassroots. And we had the... Uh, pleasure, really, of interviewing Theta Scotchpole, leading political sociologist, uh, who's done a lot of pretty amazing, I think, um, field research on that topic. And also people like Jonathan Smucker out there in uh, Rust Belt area of Pennsylvania, working at the grassroots uh, as examples of this very widespread and diverse development. And you might trace some of the impetus to this with the election of Trump, 
the Women's March right after his inauguration was a tremendous spur, one gets the feeling, to uh, particularly women's civic engagement. The Me Too movement, one of the uh, maybe offspring of that development, Black Lives Matter, and all that it has spawned at the grassroots. And then the election of, uh, of Trump creating uh, national networks like Indivisible, which really seem to have brought into active political uh, activism, you know, people who hadn't really been doing that before. Mm -hmm. uh, and the thing about these, these are well-known examples, but, but what, what uh, I learned about was that below that radar is a kind of deep organizing process that's been going on. Jonathan Smucker is just one case of many, many people doing variations on this kind of work. And what makes that particularly different from the past, that, those, that whole uh, effort, I think is that it's tied to electoral strategy. I mean, I'm used to community organizing going back to the 60s. Uh, I was somewhat involved, friends of mine much more involved. There wasn't much of an electoral thrust to a lot of what people were doing uh, beginning in those days. The, the Saul Alinsky type organizing, the, the community union type organizing. Um, sometimes there was an electoral outcomes, but the strategies of organizing were not so electoral. Well, this has changed, I think. That's part of what I think I've, I've been hearing during the weeks and months that we've been uh, doing this, this, uh, this podcast. Uh, and that the strategies of grassroots organizing that used to be elect were key to electoral, namely getting out the vote at election time. Instead of that, we're seeing all of this uh, work being called deep canvassing, relational organizing, day-to-day -day presence of organizers uh, in the neighborhoods, in the community level, canvassing uh, to hear what people have to say, not just to bring them to the polls. Do you think that's a fair statement about what's happening? Yeah, I'm not. I, I guess the the movement sociologist in me would would want to be really careful about the uh, thinking about the cause and effect or the timelines there. Uh -huh. Because my, my sense is that people that have been doing community organizing for many years have been moving towards the electoral arena that, and certainly well before Trump, and then. The other thing that we've seen, at least since, yeah, Howard Dean's run for the presidency, is that every time there, when we have a Republican president, then a Democratic presidential campaigns become social movement-like because there's there's movement-like activity that happens around them, um, and and the model has been uh, a much more distributed kind of uh, voter engagement practices and so forth. So again, at, at least going back to Howard Dean, if you were an activist who was pissed off about the Republican president and a presidential candidate came on television who inspired you, you could go on the internet and go instantly go meet other people who had similar interests and you could go and start talking to voters. And we, we've seen that. Um, we saw that with the Obama campaign. We saw that with the, the Bernie Sanders campaign, and it's become even 
kind of the go-to model, you know, that far, you know, far less exciting and more kind of establishment candidates try to replicate. My point being just that what I still see as missing is the translation of of all of that kind of activity into something directed towards transforming, utilizing uh, the Democratic Party as a set of institutions. Um, what they've all done and kind of continue to do all the way through to Indivisible is kind of go out and do a lot of uh, real of wheel reinvention and kind of redoing things that had fallen by the wayside even just a couple of years ago um, and so forth. So, and, and, and talking, the, you know, hearing from Professor Scotchpole and, and from Jonathan Smucker really sort of like reinforced that lesson to me that it's still kind of a mess out there um, in terms of people thinking about the Democratic Party strategically. Yeah, and uh, that's part of what we've also learned. Um, but uh, some of the results, though, of this phase that that uh, we're referring to of of grassroots organizing with a strong electoral purpose, you know, is is evidenced in in certainly in what happened in Georgia, um, and that, of course, you're right, Stacey Abrams' efforts mm-hmm. to to create a grassroots uh, powerful electoral thrust in that state predates Trump being elected, um, and uh, but it's it, it's certainly an inspiration for and to some extent maybe model for uh, what's been going on. So we have in other states like with similar beginnings of results in Arizona or in Pennsylvania where Smucker is, or in uh, you know in a number of places where. Uh, it's not only that there's an electoral strategy, but there's actually uh, new types of candidates being elected, new leaderships emerging. And uh, it's true what you're saying in, in general that community organizers for years have had some hope electorally. I guess what I'm feeling is that what's different, may even be qualitatively different, is that's not just going to be a byproduct of what they're doing. It's actually central set of goals is to is to uh, create new candidacies, new new uh, new engagement in the electoral process. So, in terms of what you were saying about the mess, um, and it's a creative mess. Maybe you'll agree with that, but it's definitely a mess. It's uh, is uh, the way Scotchpole describes it is the complex intertwining between these community-based groups that are autonomous and the party itself. And I don't think she defines what intertwining means because you can't define it (laughs) in any single way. Uh, It's just a a very shorthand phrase for the fact that there's relationships, but they're not well formalized. They're not necessarily um, structured in the same way in every place. Right. There's tensions within these as well as collaborations. But see, I think that's the that's the problem. Like we we should be talking about what those tensions are. And 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 yes, it's absolutely true that electoral law is different from state to state, and therefore the precise nature of the relationships between a community organization, uh, a candidate, a political party, pack, yeah. and 
uh, a trade union PAC are all are going to be different from state to state. But they're also very similar from state to state in terms of the larger political dynamics. And as I said before, sort of the stakes. And and let me be clear that it's like this is not I don't mean to blame grassroots activists, many of whom are new to politics for not spontaneously generating the the strategic key to unlocking progressive power in America. Um, you know, th this is a real failure of leadership on the part of people in the Democratic Party, in the uh, the independent organizations that prop up the Democratic Party, like the labor movement, that kind of everyone lazily thinks of the Democratic Party as, yeah, a set of bank accounts and, and instruments to, uh, you know, do campaigning through. And again, not as an organization that people belong to and try to affect change in their community through. And this is a failure of imagination that comes from the elites in the party, but it's also there in the grassroots and among very smart political actors. And, and, and where the rubber really meets the road is that so often when there's a strategic or a, a choice to be made about, should we form an organization that's affiliated to the democratic party, for example, and, uh, vet and recruit and 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 campaign for activists as some kind of Democratic Party affiliated body, or should we call ourselves United Progressives for Good Things and Kittens? <laughs> like the the impulse is always to be like, let's be United Progressives for Kittens, and I do think that that is a because we're not very well educated about what that intertwining means and what you really give up or don't give up by being affiliated to a party and people overthink it. And also just a cultural thing in the United States about, you know, of anti-partisanship and a sort of fetish of independence. But all of those things in my mind conspire to us, even our smartest uh, analysis of what's going on on the ground we just keep missing the forest for the trees. I mean, to summarize it, you know, as you know, Dick, because you supervised my my dissertation, that <laughs> I, I did all this. I have like a whole shelf of books that's about insurgencies of Democrats going back to really the post-war period and middle class folks started to join and get involved in the Democratic Party and were motivated by issues, civil rights and the environment and, um, you know, uh, neighborhood preservation, all of these things uh, that got people engaged and, and, and no longer were folks looking for jobs through a patronage machine um, or trying to keep black people from voting as the Democratic Party was the instrument of in the South for so long. But ever since then, you know, the whether it's, it's you know, 60s new politics folks or um, 80s folks uh, engaged around feminism and, you know, so-called identity politics, all the way up to the Bernie Kratz who like crashed the gates um, starting in 2016, the democratic party, the party hosts these insurgencies and then everybody kind of like runs off and does everything except stay and change the democratic party. Um, and so, you know, every exciting presidential ca campaign yields five new, you know, nonprofit organizations out there, you know, doing things and and raising money and so forth. And meanwhile, that that work of getting involved in the the the, the mess of the intertwined institutions uh, continues to go undone.
Yeah, but maybe what's needed, what would be helpful, and we only scratch the surface in our our effort on this podcast, I think, of, of what might be needed is to give people a sense of what it would look like to to actually intertwine in a more deliberate fashion in relation to the party. Because what you've just been saying really does summarize a lot of the long history uh, of uh, social movements and progressive-minded people, socialists, leftists, and this party. Sometimes people have made decisions coming out of the movements to be active in the party as such. Uh, but often it's more like we have to put pressure on the party regulars and the politicians. We have to lend our support mm-hmm. to those candidates that speak for us, that that uh, you know that speak our language. But uh, there's still that arm's length uh, relationship usually uh, in, in in that dynamic. But there's something else that's been happening, and it relates back to. Uh, that past, but also to the more recent past and to the Sanders effort and to some of the uh, base of support for for Elizabeth Warren too, I guess, is that those electoral efforts that have been undertaken by Democratic Socialists of America, DSA, by groups, new groups like the Justice Democrats, Sunrise, uh, the Working Families Party in certain areas, their efforts, as I understand it, um, have been focused typically on recruiting candidates to challenge entrenched politicians, not just endorsing preferred professional politicians, but actually creating new, new candidacies, new pipelines for candidacies in primary elections. And of course, AOC, she is the prime model of of a successful example, but there are quite a few others on many levels of uh, government now uh, who have emerged. And um, not only have they elected committed progressives in many of these cases to the Congress and to state legislature and to uh, local office, but the leadership, the people who are running are uh, people of color, uh, women of color, other underrepresented groups, um, transsexual people, uh, people uh, who are very underrepresented historically are now being elected to significant offices through this uh, strategy of shorthand word for it is primarying. Um, And so that's not news that we've created. That's something we've observed, of course, on the podcast, but it's something that's been covered a lot in in the media. Okay, friends, this is a good moment to take a break from the conversation between myself and Duraka. This is a conversation where we're trying to summarize some of the takeaways from season one of Talking Strategy, Making History. And the big theme, how can we make the Democratic Party a people's party? <laughs> 